I'm looking here at pro-poor urban social movements, particularly informal enterprise associations. I'm also looking specifically at the micro-social analysis, micro-social dynamics of the link between popular organizations and governance outcomes. Why do fairly effective-looking popular organizations fail to lead to pro-poor governance outcomes. That's really the, the center of the question I want to raise. And I'm going to focus today on why that unhappy outcome seems to take place fairly routinely in contemporary Africa. So we're, we're shifting the geographical focus uh, to Nigeria here. Now, what I want to argue here is that the failure of popular movements, of, of poor and in this case informal social organizations to lead to empowering or pro-poor governance outcomes is not a question of the quality of those social movements. It's not just a question of whether they have social connectivity, social capital, adequate levels of dynamism and uh, democracy. It's also a question of the ability of these poor organizations, A, to forge links with the state, with formal organizations, and B, to have the power to make those linkages work in the interest of the poor. And that's really the critical point. Even if you have good popular organizations, democratic, lots of social capital, and you forge links with the state, the big risk is the risk of political capture. Do those organizations actually have the power to make their links with the state continue to serve the interests for which they formed those links in the first place? And I want to look at these questions in the context of three dynamic enterprise clusters in uh, Nigeria, in southern Nigeria. So the, the big question here that I'm asking then is, how do popular organizational strategies affect urban governance outcomes, uh, particularly with a focus on contemporary Africa? The tendency for analysis right now, particularly in the era of social capital, is to assume that where the governance outcomes are negative, it's because there is somehow a lack of social capital or a lack of appropriate kinds of social capital. That maybe the kind of social capital that's formed is negative based on ethnic exclusiveness and ethnic divisions, uh, is, is too narrow, is based on norms that promote violence and authoritarianism rather than democracy and uh, connections across social cleavages. So there's, there's a tendency for a kind of circular argument. If the outcomes are bad, it's because the social capital is bad. Uh, what I want to do here is to work in the opposite direction. And look at a situation in which the social capital story is actually a really impressive one. The level of networks and economic dynamism and associational <coughs> life is impressive and varied and dense. But the outcomes are nonetheless poor. These connections do not work in the interests of, of the poor, and to try to understand why that is. Okay, so what we're looking at here in order to answer this question, we need to move beyond the micro-social focus on social capital, agency, resource mobilization at the, the level of poor social groups. We also need to move beyond the exclusively macro-focus on structural outcomes and institutional failure, which we then use rational deduction to trace back to inadequate social capital, inappropriate uh, popular organizations. What we have to do is actually try to focus on, empirically, focus on the nature of the link between popular strategies and structural outcomes. 
how do those two things, the micro and the macro, connect up, and what goes wrong? Because what goes wrong goes wrong, in many cases, right there, at that link. Now, there have been a few uh, different theoretical approaches to the nature of this link between the micro and the macro, between popular organization and social capital and governance outcomes and uh, large-scale institutions. Uh, we have the kind of mainstream social capital um, Putnam approach that's all about connectivity. The more connectivity, the denser the connectivity, the more you empower the poor. And that's uh, within the realm of co poor communities and between the poor and governance, uh, that seemed to be the case. If you can decentralize and cause more linkages between poor organizations and governments, formal sector organizations, this will create more connectivity and will begin to empower the poor. A second perspective raises questions about that. It points out that there are a lot of limitations in the networks of the poor, that even very dense networks can be too narrow and are often very poorly resourced and lack power. Uh, there's a, a fellow called Abdumalik Simon who works on uh, social capital, popular networks in African cities. And he points out that high levels of dense social capital in African cities tend to be associated with chaos, disorder, uh, propensity to, to violence and opportunism. So that dense horizontal networks don't necessarily lead to empowering outcomes. Uh, Mark Ranavetter is quite famous for his strong and weak ties thesis in which he points out that embeddedness in strong horizontal ties actually doesn't lead to uh, empowerment and influence on pro-poor governance. That in fact you need ties, uh, vertical ties between popular organizations and higher level organizations in order to influence outcomes. So really strong, dense horizontal networks doesn't get you anywhere that actually cuts the poor off from the kinds of connections that can influence policy. And uh, a final stream of literature that looks at these issues is the, the literature that looks at the problems of weak formal institutions, that uh, within developing societies you have a situation in which decentralization itself is a problem. The decentralization of formal institutions is often hasty, poorly institutionalized, poorly resourced, the staffed, understaffed with people who are uh, ill-prepared, uh, ill-trained for the kinds of activities that they're being decentralized, are being de decentralized to them. So you have a situation in which you have weak formal institutions and weak informal institutions, uh, institutions that lack the kind of networks that give them effective connections with the state. The, the outcome of those connections is that you often get a situation in which both the poor and the formal, decentralized formal institutions tend to favor clientel forms of engagement, tend to figure, uh, prefer more individualistic or collusive forms of interaction between poor social organizations or the social organizations of the poor and uh, formal organizations in ways that tend to undermine transparency and accountability. Why? Because it's, it's a way that both the under-resourced formal institution and the powerless informal institution or informal actors can try to at least maximize their own possibilities without uh, having to deal with the constraints of their wider situation. And I'll trace how that works. That, that negative dynamic, that anti-developmental dynamic in which clientel engagement ends up being the outcome of expanding poor organizations of the poor and increasing decentralization of the 
formal institutions of governance, has been referred to in a, a particular article by Judith Tendler as the devil's deal. It's a devil's deal that pushes towards an anti-developmental dynamic of clientelism rather than towards a cooperative democratic dynamic of popular empowerment. And what we want to do is understand why that happens in these uh, cases that, that I'm going to look at. What I want to look at here are three, as I said, best-case scenarios, situations of dynamic informal enterprise networks located in the uh, southern Nigerian towns of Aba. That's in the Igbo Christian area, one of the dominant ethnic groups in Nigeria, and also of the Yorwa Muslim town of Ilorin, which is over on the western side there, uh, towards the middle. Nice uh, distribution distribution of major religious and ethnic divides for Nigeria, though I'm missing the Hausa in the north, but uh, that's, that's for another research project. Now, what we have in these three enterprise clusters, and they are a weaving cluster, I'll go into these a little bit more in a minute, a weaving cluster, a shoe production cluster, and a garment producing cluster. The weaving cluster is in Ilori, the shoe and garment clusters are in Aba. What we have in all of these clusters, they're, they're embedded in, in very large urban contexts. Both towns are about a million people. They've been around for a while. All of these clusters have been around at least till the 50s, and in one case for about 200 years in the Ilarni context, so they're well established. All of them have very dense informal enterprise networks of subcontracting, global supply, international distribution, not just local distributions. They're embedded in very dynamic, globalizing economic networks informal economic networks. They also have been characterized since structural adjustment by the rapid expansion of employment. These clusters have expanded enormously. Politically as well as economically, they have a very strong associational uh, organization. Uh, all of the uh, small operators in these clusters tend to be embedded in a range of local associations, neighborhood and hometown associations, political associations, social clubs, religious associations, rotating credit groups. They're, both of these are very associational societies, and these small entrepreneurs participate in that kind of associational density. And all three clusters also have strong, well-established informal producers associations. So in a sense, these are three clusters that tick all the boxes of social capital and pro-poor organization. They have strong economic networks, strong uh, social and associational networks, and strong, in particular, producers' associations that have arisen independently. They weren't started by the state or by an NGO. In all cases, they have arisen because of the concerns and interests of local producers uh, to deal with certain problems that they had. So they're not associations that collapse once the offer of a loan from an NGO or from the state disappears. Having ticked all the boxes, these three associations have failed to promote pro-poor growth, failed to promote forms of governance that actually advance the economic interests of these clusters. And the question here is why. A few more details about these associations. Uh, I indicated they are informal enterprise associations. They're all very small, range of uh, size from about seven to barely two uh, operators, including the owner. So under 10 employees or under 10 members. They are large clusters. In the case of the shoe cluster, you have uh, more than 11,000 firms. They employ huge numbers of people, uh, between you know, 10 to 12,000 in the weaving and the garment cluster, to uh, 46,000, nearly 50,000 people employed and in one informal enterprise cluster in one town 
in southern Nigeria. So you're talking significant levels of employment. And their annual turnover is, is impressive. We're talking uh, out of, among these three clusters, over $200 million a year turnover. So again, micro-businesses, but large quantities of, of resources being generated there. So we, we have large, very dynamic firms. All, all or virtually all are in formal multiple uh, dis uh, categories. I won't go into that, but the vast majority are completely unregistered. All do not pay significant taxes, though they all pay some taxes. All are an abrogation of mainstream labor and factory legislation. Uh, and they are organized, therefore, not through the institutions of the state, but through a range of culturally embedded economic institutions. These activities are embedded through these networks uh, that cut across ethnic groups uh, into a, a range of markets. International markets, you can see particularly um, the weaving cluster and the shoe cluster, uh, in fact, market their goods across a range of African countries, the vast majority of them. In garments, not so much, because it involves a lot of tailors uh, who are based on a kind of bespoke tailoring. You, clients have to come and you measure them up. So with tailors and garment producers, some of them mass produce and export uh, to a range of, of other African countries, but the majority <laughs> tend to serve uh, local customers. Some also market to Europe and North America, particularly in the weaving cluster because of the increasingly diverse African diaspora, particularly West African diaspora. There's a lot of marketing of this uh, cloth, which is called Ashoke, to the UK and uh, to the US to service that diaspora. Uh, also a, a significant amount of subcontracting to the formal sector. So definitely informal small scale, but globalizing operate across ethnic barriers on the technological frontier of uh, machinery, of various technologies for, for contact. Now, the problem, to, it, it sounds like a, an up-and-up scenario, but the, the problems begin if you look at the wider political and economic context. We have a situation here in which economic restructuring and state neglect have imposed increasing economic pressures on these activities devaluation, skyrocketing inf inflation, liberalization of textile and shoe imports have uh, created severe competitive pressures, particularly uh, incoming Asian goods. Massive unemployment has caused a flood of people from other groups into these clusters. So you have intensified competition uh, among producers and often <coughs> competition from people who are inadequately socialized and trained into the occupation because they're in a hurry to start earning money. They don't want to serve the full apprenticeship. Full apprenticeship in the weaving cluster can be as long as 10 years. So they just want to get out there and earn money, and there's a lot of inadequate training and socialization. The result is a very disabling small business environment, also a flood of entry into these clusters, which has intensified competition and uh, led to serious problems in uh, cooperation and collective action within the clusters. I think the, the basic point that I would want to make there is that you can see that the original founding communities, the Lori indigens, the Bende uh, garment producers that I pointed out, Bende Ibo garment producers, and the Mbise Ibo uh, shoe producers, have in some cases been eroded because of the guild, not in the weaving cluster, uh, but in the other two, new groups are coming in, both Igbo and non-Igbo, and uh, competing away the advantage, or at least the prominence, of the original groups. You have also a, a large 
proportion of entrants under 30, independent entrepreneurs under 30 have a strong tendency to be undertrained, particularly in the weaving cluster, where usually you can't get full independence as, as early as 30 if you've gone through the, the proper socialization and training in, in the activity. Uh, secondary education, uh, the critical point there, as you can see in the garment cluster, you have fairly high levels of uh, producers with secondary education, more than half. Somewhat lower in the weaving cluster, although um, an increasing number of middle class people are beginning to enter into that activity um, because they, they find that in certain market niches they can make good money. Shoe cluster is such a low status activity, very few people with any secondary education want to go there unless they're desperate and have no other options. So secondary education is, is minimal there. Uh, people from advantaged class backgrounds there, I mean people who have formal sector backgrounds, they or their parents worked in the formal sector primarily, or um, uh, higher level commercial backgrounds. Again, it's not just petty and formal or rural backgrounds, but increasingly uh, more advantaged class backgrounds in all of these activities, particularly in weaving and garments, which are more respectable activities. Uh, the one place where there's not much change is participation of women. Now, the, the basic point that I want to, to make here is that these rapid changes in the social composition of these activities have actually undermined the basis for collective action. It has tended to individualize the way people organize both their business and their, their, uh, their political networks, political slash social networks. Three different types of uh, fragmented networks that are emerging in all three of these clusters I've characterized as patrimonial networks, modernist networks, these two are net different networks of accumulation, uh, and then diversification and desperation networks, those are different types of networks of survival. And these networks are characterized by different types of uh, social and associational characteristics of the people who participate in them. I'll give you a quick lowdown of what these different fragmented types of networks operating in these clusters uh, entail, just so you can get the feel of, of what we're talking about here. The first one, which is one of the networks of accumulation, are patrimonialist networks. These are networks in which informal producers who come from advantaged class backgrounds tend to cultivate or embed themselves in patrimonial ties within their village, within their religious affiliation. They try to embed themselves in the establishment. That is, that they use their wealth and their status. They tend to come from advantaged class backgrounds. They tend to be advantaged producers who've managed to accumulate a bit of money, have a few employees, etc. So they use wealth and status to embed themselves in the local establishment. They tend to join their hometown associations or their neighborhood associations. They tend to uh, not to convert to new religious movements, but to stay with the mainstream sort of establishment types of religious movements. So the established churches in the South, in the Igbo areas, uh, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, the ones that came in the colonial period and have been around for a long time. In the Islamic areas, the establishment Islamic brotherhoods like Qadiriya, which are the, the brotherhoods that uh, local officials will likely be members of as well. So they're, they use their wealth and their status as much as possible to embed themselves in the establishment and to work the system. And these people in Ilori will tend to be members of the local weavers guild, 
and in the Igbo areas, they will be tend to be members of their hometown associations, as well as, as I said, not to convert out of the, the whatever is the mainstream established uh, religious membership uh, of that area. The second type of network of accumulation is what I'm calling here modernist networks. These involve people who come from disadvantaged class backgrounds, that is, often from artisanal families, from petty trading backgrounds, from rural backgrounds, but who use education and skills to try to advance themselves outside the establishment networks, outside the tradition or the local clientel networks of the local government, local village, uh, sorry, local uh, community establishment. They tend to follow a much more Protestant ethic kind of strategy in the Islamic area as well as in the Christian area of conserving resources, developing skills, uh, emphasizing education and technical innovation, and this tends to, follow, uh, to be accompanied by conversion to new, more commercially oriented types of religious movements. It's involved a shift towards evangelical Protestantism in the Igbo areas and a shift towards new types of Islamic um, sort of commercially oriented brotherhoods, which in that part of Nigeria is the Tijaniya movement, and there's also something called Ahmadiyya. So uh, Islamic movements that tend to be pro-Western education and that tend to be um, popular with traders and commercial organizers and involve the creation of networks across uh, West Africa to provide contacts among producers and traders. So that's the, uh, within Ilori um, within and Aba, this tends to manifest itself in the clusters. In the weaving cluster, it, it is associated with a shift also to an uh, alternative weavers cluster. A lot of these people have quit the mainstream weavers guild and formed a new guild just in the 1990s, which is much more young men, modernist orientation, higher levels of education, into innovation, tapping into new markets, trying to link up with the international market, advertise on the okay, rather than the old established 200-year-old uh, Yoruba Weavers Guild. In the Aba areas, the modernist network is associated with conversion to ascetic forms of Pentecostal Christianity and quitting hometown associations, which is heresy in Igbo society. You must be a member of your hometown association, but these uh, more modernist producers have a, t a strong tendency to convert to uh, ascetic religions and to disembed themselves from their hometown association. The two networks of uh, survival have very different logics. The first one, uh, networks of diversification, involve people who lack both the status and the wealth to embed themselves effectively in the establishment, and they lack the skills and the education to advance themselves through cutting themselves off from the establishment and linking into new religious movements and modernist frameworks of advancement through skills and education. <coughs> so their strategy is diversify. Diversify and join as many things as you can in the hope that you can draw on whatever when the time comes uh, whoever will help you. So this tends to involve people with some skills, but not great, some education, but not really enough to uh, make it in a, a high-skilled environment, to make it through evangelical types of, of Christian networks or uh, skill-oriented traders' networks. They also have a little bit of, of wealth, but not enough really to uh, contribute and to lav show lavish hospitality <laughs> in the way that gives you status within the establishment. 
So they use the little wealth they have to join as many associations as they can. It means paying membership fees, paying some basic levies. When there are contributions in the church, you give a little, but never enough to really be held up as so-and-so has contributed lavishly on this occasion. Contributing lavishly is very very important in both Igbo and Yoruba society to establishing yourself as a, a prominent member of society or a prominent member of your association. They join religious, evangelical religious associations. There's a lot of conversion in this group, but they also maintain membership in their hometown associations and, if possible, join some social clubs, but are never prominent members of any of those associations. In the uh, weaving cluster, you also have a tendency uh, to join neighborhood associations, join whatever religious association seems to put you in the best situation there, join political associations, uh, which is highly frowned upon by well-established weavers. It's seen as tantamount to diversification. If you're going to join a political association, you might as well also do a motorcycle taxi on the side or do some trading on the side. You're not a real serious weaver if you do that. And also these diversifiers tend to diversify uh, their economic activities rather than being specialized in weaving or in shoe production or in garment production as the vast majority of all of these producers are. They tend to diversify into a bit of trade, motorcycle taxi in the slow season, a bit of casual labor if times are hard, which is something that the, a reasonably successful producer would never want to do. It's an occupational uh, anathema to diversify in all three of these clusters, unless you're in real economic trouble. Those are the, the different types of uh, networks. Now, my point here is that all of these networks exist in all three of the clusters, but because of the different historical, uh, ethnic, religious, social histories of these clusters, particular networks have become dominant, have become associated with the most successful producers. The different clusters have certain types of networks that actually have become dominant, been associated with accumulation, and that is connected with the social history of those associations. So I want to, to pull all of those uh, issues together here how networks of accumulation relate to uh, the development of enterprise associations. In each case, the enterprise association, and in African uh, informal enterprise generally, enterprise associations tend to be dominant, dominated by the most successful producers. And that is the case in these associations of these three clusters. The um, Weaving association is dominated by patrimonially oriented producers. Emphasis on status and wealth, not on skills and education. Uh, though there is a, a push from the skills and education contingent to form uh, a new pole of organization within the weaving uh, cluster. In the garment cluster, the association of the garment cluster is dominated by evangelically uh, converted educationally oriented producers, not by patrimonial producers. And finally, in the shoe cluster, there's a strong tendency of domination by patrimonially oriented producers who use status and wealth to embed themselves in the establishment and clientele networks rather than skills and uh, evangelical conversion and education. Okay, now, how, what does this say about how these clusters are able to link up with the state? Okay, that's, we're, we're finally getting to the, the real point here. We have different ways of organizing. Uh, different social histories have produced different types of associations. Although they are all well-embedded associations, 
ranging between 10 years and 200 years uh, of, of history behind the, the different associations. They all started up autonomously based on the interests of producers, but they are dominated by the most successful producers in each case. So patrimonial in the um, shoe cluster, modernist in the garment cluster, and patrimonial in the weaving cluster, but with a new pole of modernist producers beginning to form a new association. How successful have any of these strategies been with linking up effectively with the state and promoting or influencing policy in ways that help address the interests of informal producers? In the shoe clusters, their patrimonial orientation of the association, they're very much focused on working the system, forming the right clientele networks, clientele linkages with the local government, in which they collude around kickbacks and uh, collecting taxes for the local government in ways that are seen as somewhat unfair and corrupt in, in the eyes of many of the members. They're also very oriented around trying to get bank loans, which is done through uh, clientele ties, about linking up with types of uh, organizations higher up the, the political scale that will help them get export connections. So they're, they're keen on making connections, but also in a very collusive way in their relationship with the local government and with uh, other types of organizations within the state. In the garment cluster, they are not interested in linking up with patrimonial clusters, I mean, with patrimonial networks, with uh, clientel networks. Um, they disembed themselves from those things. Interestingly, the founding communities of the garment clusters happen to be from the same community as the governor of the state uh, at the time, in the 2000s, right up till 2007. But they never went to lobby the government or try to exploit those patrimonial ties because they realized that every time they did that, they just got drawn into things that were not in their interest. They got drawn into some kind of electoral mobilization or into uh, some kind of resource collection that was not addressing their own interests. They were interested in linking up formally. The Garment Association was a member of the uh, formal Small Business Association. They wanted to join the Manufacturers Association of Nigeria, but they faced constraints because most of their members weren't res registered, but that was their ambition was to be able to link up there. They were trying to register at the federal level so that they could protest against the liberalization of Asian garments, which was killing their activity, and they knew that protesting against liberalization at the local government level was a complete waste of time, since they don't control such policy. They also wanted to link up with a textile labor union, uh, which is based in the north of Nigeria and had actually made some connections with the, uh, the then vice chairman of the labor union. So they wanted to link up with formal sector, commercial, private sector organizations in order to influence the things that were of concern to them and even though they had an advantage, a comparative advantage, in linking up with clientel networks and working the system, because the governor was from their, uh, co the community that was dominant in the association, they weren't interested in doing it, and they didn't do it. Finally, in the Weavers Association, you have a struggle between patrimonial and modernist tendencies, expressing itself in a split in the guild between the historic uh, Weaver's Guild that had been around for 200 years, dominated by patrimonial forms of organization, and the more modernist network, which uh, was just formed, or the, the most more modernist association, which was just formed in uh, 1991. 
Again, same difference in strategies. The Patrimonial Association of the Weavers Guild was interested in embedding itself as much as possible in clientel networks, in trying to get things by lobbying the state, by colluding <coughs> with whatever the state wanted, by joining political associations and coming to rallies and uh, doing uh, the, basically the bidding of local government and state government actors in the hope that they will get some crumbs from the table of the state which wasn't working very well for them. The Modernist Association wasn't interested in linking up with the local government or the uh, state government, both of which were based in Ilori, and again, Ilori indigents had uh, a comparative advantage in working those networks. They were not interested in linking up with them. They tried to link up with formal sector organizations to get a presence at the level of the federal government to uh, link up with new marketing networks, international marketing networks, and to develop their capacity to operate as a credible, commercial, productive organization within the framework of the organized private sector. What was the outcome of these differing strategies? The outcome was that the patrimonial associations, the associations that used a patrimonialist clientel strategy, ended up consistently being drawn into activities that did not advance their own economic interest into uh, electioneering, into rabble-rousing around particular instances. In particular, in the shoe cluster in Naba, they were mobilized into attacking uh, the Hausa community, the northern community within the town, and slaughtering them in part of the anti-Sharia uh, riot system, which was directly in, against their own economic interests, since the Hausa community were big buyers, and they were reliant on Hausas coming in and buying shoes uh, during particular seasons. The modernist association didn't do any better. They attempted to link up formally and advance and represent their own economic interests through the formal organizations of the private sector and the state, but because of their social, economic, and uh, legal marginality, they basically were ignored in all of these fora. They were neglected by the state, their representations were ignored, they were marginalized or refused access to the Manufacturers Association, the federal government wouldn't let them register because they said they, said they were too small, and in the end, that uh, association, which had been around since 1984, actually collapsed in 2007. Uh, partially because of the meddling of an NGO that, as Jeff Wood pointed out, didn't pay attention to the internal dynamics of an existing association and just had its own idea about how the association should, should operate. The bottom line is uh, here again that there are different ways of operating, of, of setting up uh, small uh, popular organizations, but neither going through the patrimonial strategy or a more modernist, democratic, skill-oriented, educational, formal sector strategy, neither of these were able to advance the interests of these small informal producers. And the key reason for that is an issue of power rather than of solidarity-based organization. They were great at the solidarity-based organization bit, both economically and politically. They ticked all the boxes. The problem is a problem of power. They lacked the power to be able to integrate themselves into connections with the state in a way that used those linkages to advance their own interests rather than to advance the interests of more powerful social groups. So you ended up with situations either of capture or of total neglect. Is this only a story of 
well, then what are we here for? I, I don't want to leave you with a, a depressing tale, so I will say that there are advances in trying to figure out what is the way forward here. And the, the key way forward is to focus on the issue of what's called political voice. How do you develop political voice within popular organizations? And this is coming out of the ILO, out of an organization called WIGO, Women in the Informal Economy, Globalizing and Organizing, um, associated with people like Francie Lund, like uh, Marilyn Carr and Martha Chen, who look at the issue of political voice in the informal economy. And their basic argument is decentralization to the informal economy doesn't create power. It does not empower. It just leaves very, very weak people fragmented and unable to influence much more powerful forces. What you need to do is to aggregate political interests. Creating political voice involves getting popular associations to form alliances with stronger, like-minded associations, with trade unions, with local governments that actually uh, find their activities uh, economically important, uh, possibly with NGOs that are uh, supportive rather than that kind of ignore the realities of, of the situation that they're in. That only through alliance and aggregation of political interests can popular associations actually pose a challenge to the state and represent their interests effectively uh, at the level of the state.